Welcome, everyone, to the Good Grow Great podcast. I'm Talia Toha, and this is Six Degrees of Greatness. This is a segment where we basically talk to one, two, three different people from various different backgrounds, often from various different continents and countries, and we unpack the way that they start their career or business, all the way to how they succeed 10 plus years from when they started. So lots to digest. And today, that's exactly what we're going to be doing. We're going to be chatting with three gentlemen, and I'm so excited to share them with you because if you are currently feeling like nothing is working and you're lugging things around and you're doing all the things and yet still nothing, right, this could be the episode for you. And today specifically, I wanted to share with you Jeff Van Orso. And Jeff went from being drafted to U.S. college football team Cleveland Browns all the way to become a military pilot in the U.S. Air Force Reserve and a first officer with Alaska Airlines. And Jeff walked us through what it really takes to create an ideal flight and how you can apply the same techniques in your performance, business, and work. He also talked about how he dealt with a big disappointment and bounced back within 24 hours. And he talked about also what it takes to work with people that you admire from his experience with Cleveland Browns. And also, this is really important, the mental and physical exercise needed to work in intense sprints versus a 24-hour flight, right, which is kind of important and key lessons about endurance that we can take home whenever we're approaching work that is a little bit shorter versus work that is like all day, all week, even all month or even all year. Um, and also we're going to talk about why he decided to write his new book, Your Alternate Route. Now, at the same time, we are graced by Adrian Kalati. And Adrian, after a wealth of experience in music as a public speaker and even a rabbi, Adrian has produced over 1,000 online lectures, has over 30,000 followers on LinkedIn, and is currently working on a film later this year with $146 million in box office, Space Odyssey's Kier Julia. And Adrian will be talking about the difference between pitching that results in a yes versus one that results in crickets, you know, and uh, also talking about how to take a relationship from respecting top legends to working with them one on one and also how he chose his career path and balanced the passion and art of filmmaking with work and he's going to be sharing with us what it takes for him and for many people in his category in his space to spend two to three years working on just one thing that may or may not even happen this is really really cool to to hear now Doug Coase is also with us and Doug went from being the CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters a career at UT Athletics and named 2020 best firm by City View magazine in his category all the way to sitting down with us to share how a car accident helped him make the choice he didn't know he needed to make the number one mistake businesses make in the beginning that destroys the chances of exiting with the type of profit and earnings that they had hoped and also how he felt getting a stare from a sports legend who asked him for a favor um, and he's also going to be sharing with us the unseen effects of not hiring not just uh, the right employees but any employees for your business which is kind of a, a revealing thing that especially if you're just uh, starting out and setting things up 
this is very important to tune into. Now, if you haven't already, be sure to hit follow, subscribe, add, or collect Growth Solvers. Let's do this. All right. Welcome, you guys, to the podcast. And we have so many great stories today. And I thought I would start with you, Jeff, and your actually experience drafted as a free agent uh, with the Cleveland Browns. And and can you kind of share with us a little bit about uh, what that experience was like? Was that high pressure at the time? Was that kind of more of like a fun experience for you? Walk us through that just a little bit, Jeff. Yeah, so I went to Oregon State uh, as a full uh, athletic scholarship and uh, played for four years, and I started for three of them. I was a captain my senior year. Um, so playing, playing a big-time conference, I got a lot of exposure and got the opportunity to be in the 2008 NFL draft. Um, I was selected as a free agent by the Cleveland Browns, and I went to a training camp with them. Uh, was it uh, high pressure? Yeah, you know, you're at the big times, um, you know, seeing some people that you've only seen on TV, walking around the locker room. Um, but it was a fun experience. Uh, I'm happy I was able to be able to be a part of that. Yeah, and I've heard because obviously I don't have the the athletic gifts, but I have heard that it's you know a lot of people who've been performing well all season long, all year long, they you know when when they get drafted and when that process started, it all they all started tank you know because now the people are watching. Did you feel uh, was that kind of really what was happening real time, or was the pressure kind of before and then when you're playing, it was it was all fine? What was that like? Uh, yeah, there was a lot of pressure and it's a different game as well. In the NFL, it's a lot more of a mental game. Um, whereas I think college, if you still have athletic ability, you can beat out a lot of people. Uh, but there's tests every day for your position. Um, they're graded and you're scored against everybody else. I mean, it's, it's definitely cutthroat. They put you against the other players uh, to get the absolute best player that they can. So um, it was uh, – High pressure, but definitely an awesome experience and well worth it. Yeah. And how awesome was it to be around and meet other people who are in this kind of similar environment, perhaps even people that you admire who are a few years ahead of you or people that you've been watching? Did you have an opportunity to kind of exchange maybe, you know, some advice with each other or people who you look up to? Yeah. So initially when you go to the first, um, training camp it's not all of the starters it's usually about the second and third string guys so guys who have actually played um but they're there as mentors and I actually was got the chance to meet some new people um talk to them get their experience and they were a great help in uh the rest of my career yeah and what what led you to then transition into because you're a first officer pilot with uh, Alaska Airlines and mm-hmm. so what kind of made that transition talk us through that uh, that moment when you go oh you know what i maybe it's something else right now yeah so football was a passion of mine uh for a long time uh, but i was also interested in aviation my dad was in the air force he did a full active duty career for 20 years um flying the B52 And so flying was always a part of um, my passion and my family. And so when I was cut from the Browns, um, I played two years of arena football. And then at that point, I decided, you know, I wasn't going to make it back to the NFL. Um, We won the championship that last year. And so I decided to retire uh, and then refocus myself to flying. And at that point, I had already gotten my private instrument and commercial ratings 
Um, so when my football career was over, I just took a couple more tests and became a flight instructor. So then that got the ball rolling. Um, I joined the military, uh, got a bunch of flying time, and then was fortunate to get hired by Alaska Airlines about two years ago. Jeff, we're going to circle back to your, um, essentially your experience flying uh, Alaska and what it takes to create that great uh, experience as far as flight is concerned, right? But before we touch on that, I want to kind of go to Doug real quick. And because Doug, you had, um, you spent some time at UT Athletics, right? And then you also made this shift similar to Jeff, you kind of made this transition in your career. And this transition or perhaps, I don't know if it's a non-transition in your mind, but it happened via uh, a car accident. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience and what exactly happened uh, that kind of led you to kind of rethink a few things? Sure. Well, I was working at the University of Tennessee in the athletic department. I was in marketing and sales. Now, I didn't have Jeff's athletics abilities growing up, but I always loved sports. So I was in the athletic administration office there, dream job was there eight years, but um, as my daughter started to get older, I wasn't home as much because I was working all these athletic events, which I truly enjoyed. But I was going to uh, an interview at a local nonprofit called Big Brothers Big Sisters. And I wasn't sure if I really would take the job if even offered it. Um, But I was on the board and I felt a calling to go there and interview and just see what transpired. And on the way to the interview, I was sitting at a red light and all of a sudden I get nailed by this huge truck and totaled my card. It was a pretty bad scene. Um, and I ended up going, taking care of that. Didn't have to go to the hospital, but I said, I'm still going to do this interview because I was ready for it and wanted to knock it out. So I did the interview and I would just remember that night, you know, after you've been in something traumatic, you close your eyes and you just re visit that over and over again. And at first I thought, well, this is a sign that, you know, I'm supposed to say where I'm at. I'm not supposed to go to this opportunity if it does present itself. But the more I thought about, I thought, well, maybe this is a sign to go do this because this is a second chance. You know, I could have lost my life that day. And so fast forward a week later, I was offered the position and decided to take it and went to the nonprofit sector and was there five years and had a great experience um, helping other people and being a part of something much bigger than myself. Truly enjoyed that. Yeah. And I think this is kind of interesting because on the podcast, we talk about, about, uh, we talk a lot about decision-making, right. And kind of that, that kind of pivotal moment when you're, you can go one way or the other, right? And what leads us to going the other way where we go, you know what, that's my path for me. So I found it interesting, interested really that, um, that you kind of took that time to, to, to really review, okay, well, what is, what does this mean really? Right. And, um, and which is so interesting, but I, what I found interesting is that you, you really kind of went with your conviction and just kind of went with what you felt was the right thing. Now, speaking of feeling, uh, you know, what is the right thing for me, Adrian, you've gone through this massive, just kind of evolution of going from one industry or another, perhaps really still to this day, uh, 
a master of all of those things. You're a musician, you're a rabbi as well, film producer. What were kind of, is this something, do you kind of look at um, career path, life path, business path as a singular thing? Or do you find that being kind of what people, what the kids talk about nowadays, you know, this multi-passionate thing, do you find that that's really more the, um, the, the take that you want uh, in life? I, I made a decision about 15 years ago to do, only do what I want to do, what I love doing, even though it might not pay as well, even though it might not be as prestigious. Uh, up until then, I was in um, my family business, which was import-export of um, uh, oriental rugs, Persian rugs, which was very, very um, lucrative in the 70s and 80s. Uh, before I, I joined, but then sort of took a, stout, a, a downward path. So I, I could have got, gone for any career path. I decided, no, if I'm going to do something, if I'm going to dedicate my life to something, I'd do something that I, I was really passionate about. Uh, and that's, that was about 15 years ago when I uh, made a decision to go into videography and uh, photography in, in a, a relatively small way. As, as things evolved, um, I diversified, you know, different technologies came out. Uh, the, the first real diversion I had, I, I started getting into aerial photography, which is why I'm, I'm particularly uh, uh, interested um, in, uh, in anything aerial. So to have a pilot on, on the same podcast as me is, is a real thrill because, um, Jeff, I should tell you that uh, I had to do um, a, may have a qualification for for drone piloting, which you probably know about. It's it shares a lot of similarities, mm-hmm. obviously not as extensive um, as uh, what the the airline pilots do. So uh, you know uh, that was a real uh, shock to the system because there, there's so many parameters you've got to deal with. So I have every respect for somebody who's an airline pilot. It's not just a glamorous uh, job. There's there's it, it's really. Um, you're dedicating your life to what you do. You're, you're, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just, it's not as just glamorous as it appears to be. There's so much more to it. So, um, yeah, so I, I started drone piloting. And it, it, obviously, it doesn't have the same serious side to it as, as does flying in the air yourself. You know, you, you've got your feet on terra firma, but there are, there are moments when your heart is in your, in your throat because when you're flying this thing, which is, uh, about yay big like this and about that high and it's got four propellers on it each one if you put your finger I wouldn't advise this by the way if you put your finger in any one of these propellers it could you could lose the end of your finger yeah, you so exactly so one of these things is, is in the air you've really got to know what to do in an emergency you've got to know when a plane goes overhead you have to uh, hold your position um, you've got to be careful about weather conditions, wind, like wind conditions, not just, uh, you know, lighting conditions, uh, other type of weather conditions. So it's really, it's, it, it's a thrill. But when it comes off, it's fascinating because the results are, are amazing. So th- that's really where, where my, where my co- career took me. And for sure, it's not as lucrative as if I was in the family business and was doing all the things that any self-respecting nepotist would do i i sure as heck as I, i'm having much more 
have a, a blast doing this. But 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 I, I find um, I don't want to. I really don't want this to sound pretentious. But I find it, it's almost like my calling to be able to be in a position where where I can interact with people and speak and philosophize with people and speak with people about uh, where where they're holding in life. And I, I just really. Um, I, I just became a people person. I love to, to yeah. hear people. I, I'm with Jeff and Doug, and I'm competing with them. They're, I mean, I, I love these guys already. What, what they've done with their life challenges is incredible, how they've progressed. And I'm, I'm really excited to hear more about them as well. Yeah, and I think this is a fantastic uh, kind of segue, really, into just the idea of you know passion and profit, which is obviously two things must balance, right? And, and if you veer one way or another, something is a little bit missing. And, um, and I think what's interesting here is uh, you mentioned, Adrian, that Jeff is, is an airline pilot. She, he's actually also, um, as I have mentioned in the bio, a military pilot, which is fantastic, currently in the Air Force Reserve flying C-17. So there's so much wealth here of, of you know, just kind of skill set. But I do want to ask you, Jeff. And Doug, in a minute, I'm going to go to you and ask uh, about your process as well. Um, But Jeff, I'm curious to hear about your process pre-flight, obviously, without going into just kind of the macro level of, you know, what the plane needs to go through and everything. But pre-flight on your uh, on your end as a pilot in charge of, you know, how many people that you have in in your um, carrier and and, uh, walk us through what you personally do to prepare yourself to create this um obviously no no flight is perfect but close enough like what do you do um do you do like push-ups do you do like meditation what do you do before uh you take off yeah that's a good question um we're still trying to find that perfect flight by the way um it doesn't exist i don't believe <laughs> there's always something you can learn um for each flight uh, I think for me, it's more of uh, mental gymnastics. It's understanding what are the challenges I'm going to face that day, um, trying to foresee any challenges that might pop up, create uh, different what-if scenarios so that if something happens, you get you get weather delayed or maybe you've got weather at your destination, you're not able to go there, what are you going to do? You're just creating these scenarios <clears throat> that you've thought about prior to um, so that in case of an emergency or a divert or something happens with a passenger, you've thought about those things already so that there's no pressure when the time actually comes for you to execute. This is this is interesting. So it's almost like you're doing a, kind of like a what if or if this, then that type of situation, right? Obviously, with time and experience and everything, it all kind of becomes muscle memory. But I think this is a great reminder about how a lot of the work is front loaded, right, in some ways to kind mm-hmm. of create that amazing smooth ride. Now, speaking of front loading, um, you know, your work and even your business in our, the context of the conversation, Doug, uh, in your journey as uh, obviously in the UT athletics and then, you know, in various other things that you do with big brothers, big sisters, and then now as a business broker, kind of helping people uh, really uh, retire their, their work or maybe just move on to something else. What do you, what would you say are the top uh, kind of mistakes that people do in the beginning of, you know, let's say setting up their business or maybe even in the, in the middle 
um, that would prevent them from really exiting in kind of in a, in a way that they they hope to exit with their business uh, without getting into too many kind of technical jargons. What would you say would um, are some of the mistakes? Well, that's a good question. So yeah, now I'm a business broker. I had the itch to become a business owner and invested in a company called Transworld Business Advisors. We're franchise. So I've got the East Tennessee market and we help sellers of a business that are looking for an exit strategy, whether they want to retire, health issues, they're over it. They want to go on and do something else. So we help value the business and then we find a buyer for that business. And you know, probably the, the biggest things that I see are people have unrealistic expectations of what their business is worth. Most owners think their business is worth this amount of money and it's probably worth this amount. So bring them down to reality. And another one I'll tell you is poor books and records. Mm. That a, If a buyer comes in, they want to know it's a sound business and there's not money all over the place. I've got a real quick, funny story, if that's okay. A couple of years ago, I walked into a, a used tire shop and he said, I want to sell my business and it's worth $250,000. And we help value businesses. That's part of what we do. And I said, well, sir, how did you come up with that number? He's like, well, well that's what it's worth. I'm like, well, if it's okay, let me see your financials and, and we'll help tell you what we think it's worth and what we think we can sell it for. And he's like, well, I don't have any financials. Well, let me look at your tax return from last year. Let's see what, what your tax return said. He's like, no. He, he goes, you're not understanding. I'm like, I guess I'm not. You don't have any financial records? He goes, listen, if somebody wants to know the value of this business, I'll show them my pizza box full of cash. And that's how you can value this business. Oh, I'm like, um, we're probably not a good fit for each other. So I walked out and he was not a client, but, but that's unfortunately some people, they're not going to sell your business that way. That's just not realistic. Yeah. And I think this is so important to, to remind everyone who's listening as well, the audience, if they are in kind of the beginning journey to, uh, to kind of really look into how does that look like five, 10 years from now? And if it, if it means that holding the business for eternity, that's perfectly fine, of course. But if the goal is to move on with other things, there is, there is a way to do it. And I think obviously Doug has kind of touched on some of the key points and key highlights uh, uh, that, that people need to kind of remember, right? And, um, and Adrian, I am kind of curious in, in your world, right, in the filmmaking, videography world, and um, as far as kind of engaging, kind of Doug was just touching on engaging with the right clients, right? And choosing the right people to work with. For you, what kind of, how do you go through the, the process of choosing a certain project? I think you had mentioned that you are going to be filming with, um, can you actually, I'll let you kind of explain what your recent project is. And just real briefly, um, how did you come to deciding, okay, this is the project that I want to focus my time on because we all only have whatever, 24 hours a day. First of all, there's two different projects I'm working at the moment, but they both have more or less the same remit. So I'm, I'm involved in two different collaborations. Uh, the main one is a film which, please God, we're going to film next April, which is uh, called Sonda, which is about a Holocaust survivor uh, and post-Holocaust and his son, who he's estranged from. Um, and that's a, a film that we're going to be filming with Kia Delea, who was the um, lead actor in a film called 2001, A Space Odyssey. 
So that that's a, a, a very big project. It's, it, hopefully, it'll be very lucrative. Now, um, the process that I went through with that film was very, very simple because I just hooked up with a director friend of mine, and he's like a sort of one-stop shop. So he says, okay, don't worry, I'll get the crew, I'll uh, get the location. So he's like everything. He's like director, location manager, casting. Uh, he, he does a bit of – I just produce – and I just help him, helped him with the story. So that was a, almost like a no-brainer, okay? The, the process we're going through now is endless pre-production, which is um, we were due to start right at the beginning of COVID in, uh, in March last year, and um, obviously the world changed. Um, but my other project, which is, is, is concurrent with this project, but it's actually um, started already a few months ago, um, is a very, very simple uh, thing. I, I, I get offers all the time from different uh, people who have scripts, who throw screenplays at me and say, can you produce this? Can you fund this? Can you executive produce this? Fine, it's all very well and good, but I have a very, very small uh, area that I concentrate on. I, w- I won't do action films. I won't do rom-coms i won't do anything commercial it's probably easier if i tell you what i do do i only do inspirational films that are would be rated u in the uk a u rating means even my 90 year old grandmother can watch it (laughs) so it's got to be a film that, that is inspirational it'll leave you uh thinking about what you've just seen hopefully it will make you will improve your life in some way. So it's going to be, it's not entertainment for the sake of entertainment that I definitely don't want to do. So, um, I generally look for, for, if I'm, it's my own project. If it's my, my own production, I look for crew who will be focused on that. They, they will treat it like a passion project. It's not a job. Uh, Obviously, you know, we, we tend to pay crew when we work with them, but they've got to be in it not for the money, they've got to be in it for the, the message and what it's going to give people as they leave the cinema or as they watch it on any social media, etc. Yeah, and I like that you you kind of focus on, you know what, this is going to be my speciality and this is it. You know, the, anyone else who's pitching me all of these different ideas, that's going to be, that's going to take, a, you know, a second kind of priority, third, third tier and all these things. So I love that you have that approach. And I think a lot of people who are listening who are maybe going to, to or looking into advancing their career, advancing their business or whatever. I think the mistake that a lot of people make and all of us are often needing reminding uh, of this is really just okay other certain people have certain interests and needs and it really is whether or not um, it's aligned now I do want to touch real quick Jeff on your uh, initially you were actually supposed to fly uh, F-15 and then afterwards after after you kind of went through that initial phase um, you then um, were reclassified to C-17, right? And I don't know too much about aviation and obviously um, all of these different um, jets and, and amazing kind of, uh, I guess, uh, ways to fly. But can you kind of 
Do, was that was that a did you consider that as as an up level? Did that make you kind of go feel like you go forward and uh, kind of walk us through what was the thought process when when that change that paradigm shift happened? Yeah, that was probably one of the toughest times in my aviation career. Uh, so I had been hired to fly the F fifteen. I went all the way through training. I was a year and a half into training. I went through a year course um, to learn how to fly basic planes. And then I went to the F-15 course and I wasn't able to complete that course. And so they uh, removed me from the program. And at that point, I was basically jobless. Um, the Air Force told me to either find a new job or they'd find one for me. Um, and I had a three-month-old uh, baby. I was oh a brand new dad. And now That's you know, life hits you. So uh, it's just diverse, or, um, adversity. You know, like what happens when things like this happen, or, you know, it really speaks to your character as to how you're going to deal with that situation. And so um, I took one personal day for myself. And then the next day I was uh, on the computer, on the phone, making phone calls and um, trying to be in control of my future. And I was fortunate enough to find an awesome squadron, the Fly C-17s uh, in California. I'm a West Coast kid, so I wanted to stay on the West Coast, my family. Um, my wife's family were all on the West Coast. And so um, it was the best uh, opportunity and best thing, you know, to kind of happen out of a tough situation. Yeah. And this is so funny because a lot of times you do hear this as well, right? A lot of people um, saying, oh, I got laid off. I, I you know, I, I wasn't able to take on that project. I got fired, whatever it is. Um, and uh, that in their world at the time seems like an epic failure. But then in retrospect, they always go, you know what, that's the best thing. Or, you know what, thank goodness that happened because now I get to do this other thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a I do want to highlight real quick that you mentioned that you took a personal day off, which I think is important because people either go, you know what, I'm just going to forget about the whole thing. It's this is not worth it. Or they go the other extreme and they just kind of jump straight into like a job search on Google and just kind of randomize the process. And there's not really a strategy to it. But I like that you're uh, purposeful and, and methodical about this is my time to just kind of go, okay, you know what, this is, it's okay to feel a little bit awful now, but then tomorrow let's do this a different way. Now, Doug, I am curious to hear because I think a lot of people in the business world, when they're taking on certain clients, when they're taking on um, certain projects, perhaps like uh, like Adrian did, um, sometimes midway, right, you kind of discover that certain things weren't a fit. And you touched on it earlier, how, you know, you were speaking to a particular prospective client and you're like, oh, you know what, this is not a good idea. Was there a time when you you start working with someone and then midway you're going, this is not, this is not working for either of us. And what did you do then? Did you kind of stay on? Did you um, did you refer them elsewhere? What was the the process there? Well, one case in particular I'd mention is that we had a an assisted living client that was looking to sell real estate was included, the facility and going through the process, started to realize things weren't adding up. Um, now, we did a, find a buyer from Michigan, and it was all looking good. And he understood. I, I told him about the challenges, some things that um, he was have to overcome if he was to purchase the facility and the building. And it was very sad that um, he made an offer, it was accepted. We're going through the due diligence phase. And I met with him on it was a Monday morning. I remember at 11 and he was going to stay after we had had our discussion 
and move forward. And it was the last time I saw him. <laughs> um, he disappeared Bye. after that. I don't yeah. know. If he decided I'm not going to move to Tennessee or if yeah. he got hit by a truck. He literally disappeared. <laughs> no so if I were seeing him, I'm going to give him a black eye, but because I, I hope he is okay. I mean, let's be honest. Um, but not not to communicate if he did change his mind. What happened yeah. was really disturbing, and um, and then the listing expired with our client, so we never ended up sell- selling it, unfortunately. But those things can happen that yeah, you can be moving along and things look good, but until the deal is done, you don't count your blessings. Nothing is said. Yeah. And it's kind of funny how, well, I shouldn't say it's funny really, because you obviously uh, people go through this a lot. They've spent quite an intense amount of time on certain projects, certain uh, clients and customers, what have you. And then something just fell off, right? And something just went sideways. And then you're like, well, that's that there goes a hundred hours plus that I'm never going to get back. Right. Right. So I think um, it's, I think it's good to remind everyone who's listening that this does happen everywhere. And I wonder, Adrian, if this occurs to you as well, in I've heard certainly, and obviously in kind of the big box uh, offices project, where you kind of have these uh, projects lined up, and then before they they launch it or before whatever, maybe even mid- the middle of production, they go, you know what, we're going to scrap that. Uh, what was is what does what if you work in it, right? If you work in it in these projects. How did that feel? And then what do you normally do? I mean, you've already invested time and money in it. What do you normally do? Okay, so um, nobody who's got half a brain, two brain cells to rub together will go into this industry thinking it's going to be a smooth ride. I mean, both Doug and Jeff have explained very lucidly how that's obviously not the case. You can't, there are going to be disappointments along the way. And it's no different in the film business because I remember when we started pre-production way, way back uh, over a year ago on this current, uh, this film called Sonder, the, the, the director told me, he said, you know, Stanley Kubrick spent two years on a pro- project called Napoleon and it never got made. <laughs> and that was two years of his life. And he, he is an iconic director. Anyone knows anything about um, inspirational films, Kubrick, it, I mean, listen, he, not every film he made was appropriate in, in my uh, humble opinion, but he was certainly extremely talented um, director. And to spend two years of your life on a project, come out with nothing is astounding. So that was in my head the whole time. and has been ever since. So, in a way, I'm thinking this project next year, if COVID is going to drag on and on, and we're dealing with an actor who's in his 90s, he's in his mid-90s now, I mean, he looks about 65, 70. Um, if that's going to drag on, how are we going to bring that actor over to the UK and expect him to be in an environment? So, yes, I'm, I'm living with disappointment every day. But you know what? If it's going to get you down, then... You, know, you just have to pick yourself up. That's life. That's yeah. life. 
And this is so, I think it's crucial to highlight that it does take a long time to make something happen, right? I think particularly in the creative world, uh, I think a lot of people forget that it takes two plus years. I think there are some projects going for like seven years, bouncing scripts off and everything, and yeah. still nothing, right? Still in pre-production. And, um, and I think it's kind of curious to hear how a lot of times these days, a lot of people go, oh, I want it right away. I want to be X numbers, you know, by this and then. I'm like, those are all great you know the goals are great but um, it does take some time and I am curious to hear because uh, speaking of taking time Jeff when you're you know when you're an athlete or maybe in your aviation kind of training how long did it take you to feel like you you obviously there's again there's no perfect flight and we're never kind of quite there but how long did it take you to feel like you're you you're like okay no this is good this is we got this and then you know there's still some some improvements, but this is good. How long did it take you for for uh, for your experience? I think flying wise, there's stages. Um, you know, like when you get your first initial private pilot's license, and you can go out by yourself. You know, you, you get comfortable there, but then you hit the next stage, and you learn instrument phase, and then you hit the next stage. And so there's always this um, level of learning. Uh, but you talk about the time it takes. That's that's the most important thing, I think, for flying for business for you have to build the foundation to build on top of that and then it's gonna take time for you to learn that expertise and so I started flying in 2004 um, I got my private pilot's license in about a year and a half like I joined the military and started flying about 10 years after that um, and then I got to a major like 15, 17 years after my first actual flight. So that's a long time. And there's a lot of stuff that's happened in between to get me to the point where now I feel comfortable. I've, I've learned a lot of stuff in the past that is my foundation. And now I can just add on new types of aircraft along the way. I don't remember if, um, you know, if you guys know the the book 10,000 hours, but it really does kind of speak to that, right? Like that you do have to put in your dues and in whatever, really. And it's, I think especially in flying, it's kind of like the, the mileage phenomenon, the more miles you get probably the, um, you know, the better, because then you know a little bit more about uh, what to expect, some unexpected things, perhaps, that uh, that you can expect. But was there a moment when maybe perhaps you're already kind of a number of years into your aviation career, when perhaps you got a feedback from from somebody in in the kind of supervisor position, that's a little bit, huh, that's interesting. I didn't think or maybe somebody from, you know, one of the passengers, perhaps, saying something that's not so uh, very kind, perhaps. I don't know if that ever happens in, in your world. Uh, every landing. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody comes up and they've, they've got their rating for you. Um, and so typically either uh, the captain usually stands at the door, um, but if he's busy, I'll stand out there or whoever did the landing so that you can get the, uh, the, the initial feedback. Um, most people are kind, but there's a couple of people uh, that will speak their mind. And so you get that immediate feedback right away. But like I said, we're always learning. Um, even though, you know, I'm a first officer, I'm not a captain. So I'm always learning from my captains or in the military. I'm learning from my instructors who have more flight time than me. And so I'm always getting positive and negative feedback from them and taking it uh, to make myself a better pilot. 
I think this is so true as well that whenever you you know you do something it's almost like a pendulum there's always kind of like that push back from you know, maybe the naysayers you know I think the goal is obviously not to kind of listen to the vocal minority who do, who doesn't like the landing you know um or maybe a little bit if it does if it really is constructive right but I am curious to hear Doug cuz you mentioned that at one point in your career you got the stare from Pat Summit who is uh, a legendary UT uh, lady volleyball uh, kind of uh, basketball um, coach. And can you kind of explain what that felt like when you got the stare and what was the context around it? Sure. So that was one thing she was known for when she was a coach and she's all time winningest coach in CA history, true legend around here and across the country. So when I was at UT athletics, I was around her a little bit. I was more on the men's athletic side of the women's but there was one day when, and I was in marketing, that she and the men's coach, Bruce Pearl, wanted to go to the student union during lunch hour and fire up the students and encourage them to come to the game that night. And she met us there, and she pulled up at the student union, and she didn't want to leave her car out front. So I volunteered to move her car. I'm like, so I get in her car, and I'm like, I'm in Pat Summit's car. This is unbelievable. And they had just come out with these new models because this was, you know, 12, 13 years ago that it was a keyless start. And I'd never been in a car like that at the time. So I couldn't figure out how to start the cars. <laughs> so I, and I, it was 15, 20 minutes ago and I'm sweating and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's, what's going to happen? She's going to come out here and the car hasn't moved. So sure enough, she comes out <laughs> and the car hasn't moved and, and I get the stare, the Pat Summit stare. And I felt this big. Oh. I'm like, coach, I'm sorry. I couldn't figure out how to start your car. Even though I have a college degree, I, I don't know. And she jumped in the car, started it, and drove away. And, you know, again, not real big. Um, but it was a pretty funny story that I can share. And But it, to me, it speaks to her that she didn't want to leave her car there because she didn't want people to think that she was better than anyone else, that rules didn't apply to her. Um, even though it was a very short duration and um, she just had high character and we all learned a lot from her and her time here. That's actually really important. I'm, I, that's, that's really nice that you kind of provided that context a little bit because what happens is I think a lot of times we don't understand why, especially people we admire or mentors and all these other folks, like we don't always understand why they want things a certain way because, Oh, they're in a different position. Right. I think in Pat's position, she has this kind of a character that she wants to uphold, which is kind of hilarious, though, that she kind of made that uh, that gesture and be like, what, what is going on here? How come you didn't do the one thing that I asked you to do? <laughs> I asked you one thing. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a previous relationship with uh, or is that kind of just the one t- one touch type of an interaction? Yeah, with her and spe- specifically, it wasn't a whole lot of interaction um, obviously, she was held, held on a pedestal around here and um, carried a lot of weight in not just UT athletics, but across women's athletics and was a trailblazer in many ways. So mm, that's a great person to be around. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think it's so it's so interesting to see how 
we react sometimes with people that we admire, right? And uh, and our mentor, I'm sure you probably would have been completely capable of starting that car if it weren't perhaps Pat's. And you're just like, oh my goodness, I got to get this right, <laughs> you know, right? Um, and uh, which kind of led me to to wonder because uh, Adrian, you mentioned that you're going to be working on a few projects with some great people, obviously from the Space Odyssey movie, and uh, which I assume you know the, some of the actors and people behind them. Uh, you have a level of respect, right? And what does it mean to uh, to work with somebody who you respect? And how do you kind of how do you do that? I think a lot of people put uh, others in on a pedestal, right? And kind of uh, can you explain for the audience who's listening, who is still expanding their network, still looking to kind of reach out to people who they admire, perhaps. What is, what's your process like? Like, do you, uh, do you kind of approach them as a colleague? Like, how do you go, go about that relationship? Well, that's interesting you say that because um, part of me is like massive fanboy. So if I'm, if I'm working with somebody who's uh, uh, famous or somebody who I really look up to, there's a part of me that just wants to fall apart there and then, you know, yeah. but, but at the end of the day, I, uh, joking aside, it doesn't really phase me. Um, like, 2001 A Space Odyssey is an iconic movie. It was voted uh, in one poll, was voted best science fiction film of all time, and another poll, the best, uh, the sixth best film of any genre. Uh, it was absolute um, uh, trailblazing film when it came out. So Keir Delea, although he, he's not a household name, um, he, he's pretty much, I mean, he's still, like I said, he's in his 90s. Up until the beginning of COVID, he was still going all the conventions. So we met with him and we sat with him in uh, a coffee shop in Brighton in the UK. And um, I have absolutely no issues whatsoever. I'm, I'm sitting with him and he's the most charming person. And his wife is with him and she's charming. So, I mean, for us, I, I mean, I don't really have any issues. I don't have, uh, you know, sessions where I have to pinch myself and say, oh my gosh, I'm with this this um, great media personality. It doesn't really affect me in that way. But I, I think that, that works better because I think people who are on that type of level, they don't want to feel like somebody's fawning around them. They want to feel that people are treating them like an equal. I mean, that's what I feel. I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't worked with any prima donnas or people who sort of only want the the, the red um, M and M's in a bowl in their in their trailer. I don't work with I don't work with people like that. So yeah, I tell you, that that analogy is interesting to me. Red M and M's. That's very. <laughs> I want the, the chocolate yeah. ones. <laughs> the chocolate. Um, but I am. Uh, I I kind of. It's really interesting though, right? Because I think we all look at pressures in different contexts, and obviously, you know, it's um, you know, one a pressure pressure for somebody is not necessarily pressure for someone else. But I do want to kind of touch on you know, because we've touched on mental pressure, unexpe- expecting the unexpected, but. Um, I want to ask Jeff real quick on kind of more kind of the physical pressure side of really being able to to advance and move forward. Because in your world, I mean, with G4s and all these other things, um, you know, just kind of flying, uh, flying really does, I think, takes a toll on your body. Now, do you ever, what was, do you have to train outside of your, your regular training? Was that ever something that you, you kind of go through? Or is that really not, do you not have enough time for that even? 
No, I think uh, being a prior athlete, so flying the F-15 and more advanced aircraft, you talk about the G-forces, that is, takes a huge toll on your body. Uh, and it's just a one-hour flight and you'll be wiped out for the rest of the day. Um, so having that prior experience of working out, conditioning, um, definitely held over. And I continue to give myself at least an hour, uh, four or five times a week to, um, it helps with like the mental relaxation, but also the physical performance of when I'm flying. Now, when I transferred to the C-17, it's a whole different world. You're not flying uh, high-performance aircraft and pulling Gs. You're flying 24-hour duty days. And so it's a physical exhaustion of uh, always being on, um, being able to turn it off, go hit the bunk for an hour or two, refresh mm-hmm. yourself, and then get back and uh, continue the mission. Yeah, this is interesting. I, I'm so glad that you touched on really the difference, right? When you're kind of, it's an intense period versus this kind of endurance, almost like a marathon, which is all very different. And I think whether we're talking physical or mental stamina, endurance, resilience whatsoever, uh, it's it's it, you have to treat it differently. And I'm glad that you touched on the 24-hour flight, for instance, and then being able to turn off. What kind of mental mindset shift do you have to do or do you even do um, or do you not have to do it anymore um, to be able to withstand such a lengthy period of time uh, when you're working? Uh, you got to understand um, what you're in for. So you're in for a full 24-hour day. And sometimes we take off in the evening wherever we are and fly all over the world. So you need to sleep during the day. Um, that can be difficult. Obviously, you've got the sunlight, you've got, you know, the maids next door that are cleaning the rooms and vacuuming, and you're just having to deal with all these external pressures to that do impact your performance, making sure we delegate our sleeping arrangements. So if somebody's tired right away, we'll throw them in the bunk so that we can get a solid rotation going um, so that we always have uh, fresh bodies. Just real quick, I'm kind of curious for the behind the scenes of kind of airline operations real quick, because I, I mean, I fly halfway across the world a lot because my family's um, far away. And I am kind of curious just for personal curiosity and probably the audiences as well, because I've heard Mm -hmm. that they have, you guys have bunks. Is it in the top level? Is that correct? Or in the back or what's usually the situation there? Right. So I clarify the 24 hour duty days are with the military, Alaska. Um, they have the smaller, smaller aircraft, but commercial aircraft like the triple seven with United or that they have, uh, like an upstairs portion with a couple of sleeping areas. Um, in the C-17, there's four seats in the front cockpit area. And then there's a, a wall with a door. And then there's two bunks, uh, a top and a bottom. Uh, with like a memory foam mattress, mm. uh, pillow and blanket, just kind of the basics for you. But um, we we rotate through there. And then, you know, some people we bring with the cargo compartment, we got a big old area in the back. Um, air mattresses or hammocks or just kind of whatever people are comfortable with. Hmm. Do you ever see anything curious when you're up on air? I, I, I've heard a lot of kind of uh, little stories here and there, and I've spoken to a number of people in aviation who mentioned that when they're flying, sometimes they notice, you know, something just interesting, like, oh, that that shed has like a weird, um, you know, that's interesting. The doghouse is in, in, you know, on top of the whatever, you know, like the roof or something interesting. Is, does that ever come across your way or is everything pretty uh, on, on earth from 30? thousand feet usually pretty normal looking 
Uh, no, I definitely, um, I enjoy geography. Uh, I, I'm fascinated with like the stars. So getting to kind of look at that at night, we've seen satellites um, passing through the sky, but like mountain ranges um, flying over like the Tetons, the Rockies, you know, I flew with the captain who was a geologist and he pointed out all these uh, spots mm. as we flew from uh, New York to San Francisco. It was fantastic. And so I'm always uh, looking down and uh, trying to learn something new every time. Yeah, that would have been interesting, I bet. Uh, you know, just kind of have a geologist kind of inform everything. And I wonder if perhaps that's, uh, you know, the interest, the kind of more zoomed in interest comes from, you know, drone piloting, uh, Adrian, right? Like, which is something that you guys do. And when you catch certain details that you're like, huh, that's that's a blue Smurf house, you know, sm- blue Smurf house that's kind of weird, you know, or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so it's really interesting. But speaking of high level perspectives, you know, 30, thousand feet, which I think we can also apply in the world of business and entrepreneurship. Uh, Doug, when you kind of take someone through that experience of, you know what, uh, you're, you want to transition, you're done with your business, or you want it to kind of move on to something else and you want to sell it. Like, how do you kind of uh, format, I think in the beginning before perhaps that you take them on into, uh, to become your client, how do you, how do you kind of describe and paint the picture of what they can expect from uh, the, ex- uh, the experience, perhaps in like just a few sentences or so? Sure. So most sellers come to us because they want to sell their business for the reasons I talked about earlier, but they want to keep it confidential. They don't want to tell their employees, their clients, their vendors until later in the process so we help confidentially list their business and we do certain things and how we list it in terms of marketing it and describing the business in details to give a buyer enough interest to know they want to move forward, but not enough details where they can identify the business. So that's kind of the secret sauce that we help with our clients is keeping it under wraps. Mm-hmm. I love this because you do have to kind of have a balance of you don't want to kind of give them a whole book of catalog, right? Because that's not interesting at all. But you do want to kind of give some highlights on what's important for them, but also kind of keep a, a great overview that is engaging and attractive to them, right? So I think this is also probably applicable, Adrian, in your world when you're, let's say, let's just take you a whole number of years back. I mean, now you have some years into your career, but let's say that you're just starting out, right? And you have to pitch uh, certain certain groups, you know, perhaps about your idea um, and, and a movie perhaps that you wanted to do. How can people who are in that position, for instance, kind of stand out and maybe send something that takes just five minutes? What should they include in their messaging? Okay. Um, when you're pitching, you're pitching to people who are investing and you're and not just money, people are investing in the idea of what you're doing. So you've got to make your idea as unique and as individual as possible. So uh, it's got to be something that they say, listen, this is going to give me a return on my investment. That's one thing. You don't want to invest in something which is it's a good idea, but it will never go anywhere. So you've got to show them two main things. One, they've got to have a real uh, chance of recouping their money manyfold and secondly you've got to show them that that this this is not a one-off uh production this is a production that's gonna um maybe generate a franchise it might be something which it might be a one-off but it will will be remembered many years uh down the line but really i think over and above all 
you've got to show them that you personally have invested time and effort into this project. It's not something you just scribble onto a piece of paper and show them, here we go, and it's like a pipe dream. You need to show them that I'm, I'm, I've um, investigated this project. I've, I know it from A to Z, back to front, up and down. There's no uh, part of this production which will fall foul of, a, I mean, obviously within your control. Now, this is exactly what we did for our film Sonder back in March 2020. Um, but we couldn't foresee that practically the next day, there was going to be a pandemic. Um, we'd arranged filming in March from January. So as time progressed, it just got worse. And then, but so how, but apart from that, obviously you need to show them that you're, you're in control of, of everything. But at the same time, like you mentioned earlier, you've got to expect the unexpected. Yeah. And this is so true. I think a lot of times we, we kind of forget that we have to do all of the, most of the hard work first for somebody else to just go, yeah, for sure. I'll work with Adrian or whatever. Right. Um, and a lot of times we're like, well, how come you didn't get it? Like, how come you don't get it? This is so obvious. I think this is true as well in, in many kind of different domains in business where you're pitching someone or you're sending someone a message about what you want to do. And you're like, well, nothing, you know, and, but there's this whole kind of uh, thought process behind it that you've, you've touched on Adrian. Right. And I think this is true as well um, for people who are looking into buying books, right. Expanding their client um, portfolio and such, because they really have to within, and I think this is probably true now. There's there's so many kind of scroll problems. Everyone's scrolling everywhere. And um, so it has to be quick, right? A lot of things have to kind of look and um, and present itself in, in a meaningful way um, really quickly. So you've touched on return on investment real quick, obviously, if they're an investor and painting the picture for not just what this movie will do, but also the future. So I think if people who are listening, thinking about, uh, writing a book or, you know, starting an e-course or whatever. This is so true because you can kind of paint a picture for what's to come. But speaking of writing a book, I do want to mention Jeff's, um, you know, new book that uh, that he's written. And uh, Jeff, can you share a little bit uh, about why you kind of decided to write this book and a little bit about what it's about for the audience who's listening? Uh, my book's called uh, Alternate Route. It's the uh, ultimate guide to becoming a pilot in the Air National Guard and Air Force Reserve. And uh, earlier on, Adrian uh, touched on it. So when the pandemic started, I had a lot more free time to myself. I wasn't flying as much uh, with the downturn in the economy. And I really wanted to do something that was a passion project for me. Like I wanted to help other people get to where I am today. And how can I do that? Um, well, one thing I found out was going through the Air National Guard or the Air Force Reserve, as opposed to active duty, is you're given a lot more freedom and opportunities that a lot of people don't know about. So for example, you can choose either the, air, the aircraft you wanna fly or the location that you wanna live based on uh, what is available in the inventory. And you can specifically target either that location or that aircraft or both. And you don't, if you don't get the job for that specific unit or squadron, then you haven't signed a commitment to the Air Force, no harm, no foul, you can, you can try to uh, apply again later. But what you're doing is you're applying specifically to be a pilot in the Air Force. Whereas if you go to the active duty, you go to the Air Force Academy, for example, 
um, you're competing with everybody else mm -hmm. and they'll rank you. And so they'll take the top 10, 20%, and then uh, they'll send those people to pilot training if that's what they choose to do. So you're constantly competing, whereas the Garden Reserve is more of like an interview style in the civilian world to where you'll compete in an interview, but if you get the job, you'll be sent to the Air Force as a pilot. Um, so that's just one thing that, that not a lot of people know about. And so well, with my free time, I decided to write a book and it's a step-by-step -step process, more of a tutorial of uh, my story, how I went about doing it, uh, an easy kind of bare bones, start to finish way to accomplish the process in the fastest way possible. Because I know everybody's situation is different and everybody has, you know, either, you know, oh, I have contacts or I have glasses or, you know, I have this random medical issue. You know, those things aside, um, I, I, I did want to give just a, an easy uh, start to finish. It's only about 107 pages, uh, pretty easy read. But again, just a way to educate and, and mentor the people behind me. Yeah, I love how you said that this is like when when you have free time, which obviously most people don't, and you don't as well, and yet you produce this book. And I always appreciate authors who come on, some of them best-selling authors, you know, New York Times best-selling authors, and, and I'm like, where do you find the time? And they're like, you know what, just little bits here and there, and then you put them together, and you know, voila. Um, probably kind of a similar process with filmmaking as well, Adrian. But I think even in, in the in, uh, kind of carrying businesses into this, um, this amazing amazing exit, Doug. Uh, this is true as well. You do have to kind of give a certain guidance, right, to people who are um, who are looking to, you know what, I do want to sell this business. I do want to do something with it. I want to maybe, you know, once the money comes, I want to do this other passion project. Um, do you have an, like maybe one, two, three action steps that you can share with the audience who's listening, who's like, you know what, I want to set myself up for um, a successful exit, you know, whenever that is, 5, 10, 20 years from now. Um, obviously, you've already touched on uh, paperwork, right? You've already touched on kind of keeping a documented record about uh, what you do, the taxes, all of those things. Anything else, Doug, that you can share with the audience? Yeah, I would say that a business that is turnkey and it is not completely reliant on the owner. So when a buyer comes in and if the owner has all the relationships with the vendors, the clients, the employee, or the, and the employees are being micromanaged, a buyer is not going to be attracted to that. They want to come into a business that even when the owner leaves, the seller leaves, that it still, still continues to churn and be successful. So you want to have management in place, key employees in place. So with, when the seller does leave, the buyer can step in and it conti continue to be a successful business. Right, because they don't want to kind of buy into yet another job that they have to do, right? This is right. something to kind of be reminded. And I, I think people often forget that. I think particularly now when they're running their business and they're, you know, it's super successful, even if they're multimillion, and yet they're still in it. They're still in the operations side of it. And they haven't yet delegated key employees, like you mentioned. It's it's kind of a tough way to, as Adrian had mentioned, kind of pitch investors and people who are looking to, to well, well, what's the return on this, right? So uh, this is this is fantastic, but why don't each of you guys just share real quickly with the audience where they can find you, perhaps, um, you know, a website, and uh, we'll wrap up the interview. And we'll start with, let's start with Jeff. Sure. Um, so like I mentioned, my book is called Alternate Route. Just uh, take a look. At the, uh, I also have a website. I've got a lot of information there. I'm starting a blog. Uh, it's called youralternateroute.com, uh, as well as a YouTube page. 
uh, just search alternate route pilot. Uh, you'll find me there. And I uh, just started a series on the six easy steps to becoming a military pilot. Amazing. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, great videos there and a lot of great value for those who are interested in that, in that route as well. Now, Adrian, how about you? Where can people learn more about your work? Okay, so there's a, there's a few ways. Uh, um, with social media, the only uh, way you can get me socially is through LinkedIn. So I have a very uh, good LinkedIn profile. Uh, you can search for me, uh, Adrian Kalati, or um, with my director. So that's, that's called Kalati and Morel. M-O-R-E-L. Yeah, I suppose that's the best way to get me. And uh, yeah. just keep looking out for Sonda, the film, how we're progressing. Yeah, this would be a fantastic. Anyone who's interested in kind of that creative process, I think Adrian would be a terrific resource for sure. And how about you, Doug? Where can people learn more about your work and, and seek help from you? So our company is called Transworld Business Advisors of Knoxville. And our website is sellmynoxvillebusiness.com. Amazing. Well, gentlemen, this has been an amazing conversation. So much uh, to to unpack for sure. And we've unpacked a lot. Um, I wish we have more time with each of you, but uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Much appreciate If you haven't already, be sure to hit follow, subscribe, add, or collect Growth Solvers. Let's do this. Oh, 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 oh,